The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. Imagine celebrating the life of your only child and not having his body to grieve over. Imagine unable to put closure to his personal affairs because there is no body to obtain a death certificate. Or his children three years later with no death benefits for the same reason. No body, no death certificate. On the rainy night of May 17th, 2020, in the quiet town of Kenosha, Wisconsin, 40-year-old Rosalio Gutierrez Jr. found himself immersed in a flurry of text messages. He'd been single for a while and had been going on dates, but there was one woman in particular who'd caught his attention, a woman named Sadie Beecham. Every night, Rosalio would text Sadie goodnight, but that night, his text never came. Maybe he was ghosting her, or perhaps more innocently, something had just distracted him. She had no way of knowing that in reality, Rosalia was actually tied up with something completely unexpected. And from that point on, not only would she never hear from Rosalia again, no one would. Join me now as we unravel the disappearance of Rosalia Gutierrez Jr. You'll learn how one of his new relationships was being monitored by a jealous ex-boyfriend who seemed to want to keep his former flame all to himself. Way back in the mid-17th century, in Chipping Camden, England, 70-year-old William Harris disappeared completely during a two-mile walk. When his servant went out looking for him, he eventually discovered some of William's clothes on the road. They'd been slashed and were stained with blood. But as for William himself, there was no trace. The servant reported to authorities that William had been killed for his money and his body had been dumped into a pond, claiming his own mother and brother were the culprits. Although William's body was never found, the servant and his family were all convicted for William's murder and sentenced to death by hanging. And that should have been the end of the story, but it wasn't. Two years after he disappeared, William Harris suddenly reappeared with a wild tale about being kidnapped by bandits and sold into Turkish slavery before bravely escaping and making his way back to England. Obviously, this meant that the execution of the servant and his family had been a grave miscarriage of justice, an event that set off the precedent that circumstantial evidence wasn't always enough for something as important as a murder trial. For centuries after, it led people to believe the myth that without a body, a murder couldn't legally be proven. 
But while it may be difficult to prove a murder without a body, it's not impossible. And overwhelming circumstantial evidence can't simply be discounted offhand. Not only does the blood of a victim tell a story, the history of the perpetrator does too. Especially when there's a history of unhinged escalating criminal acts. Which brings us to the case of Zachary Anderson. On February 28, 2023, 42-year-old Zachary Anderson was sitting in a Kenosha County courtroom in Wisconsin on trial for the murder of Rosalio Gutierrez Jr. The catch? Like the case of William Harrison in England, Rosalio's body had never been found. In murder cases where the victim's body is still missing, the prosecution has its work cut out for them because not only do they need to prove that the defendant is guilty of murder, they need to first establish beyond a reasonable doubt that a murder actually occurred. In order for the state to prove Zach murdered Rosalio Gutierrez Jr., they needed all the evidence they could get. Fortunately for prosecutors, they had a star witness willing to testify against him, his own daughter. For a lot of little girls, the chance to have a special one-on-one -on -one birthday with their dad is something to look forward to. Where they're the center of attention for one day, no annoying siblings to compete with, a chance to do all the fun things kids can usually get away with when dad is steering the ship. Like ice cream for dinner, scary movies before bedtime, or even a day of playing hooky. But for an 11-year-old, we'll refer to as Abby, living in southwest Wisconsin, daddy-daughter time had gotten a little weird over the past while, and her birthday would be no exception. On April 24th, 2020, Abby's father, Zachariah Anderson, had taken her out for a late-night drive sometime before midnight. The timing alone was unusual, but what added an extra layer of strangeness was the fact that he left Abby's four-year-old twin brothers behind, sleeping in their beds. But maybe it was a special birthday surprise. Abby rode along with her dad until he parked outside a home she was very familiar with. It was the home of her mother, Sadie Beecham, also Zach's ex. What Abby eventually discovered was that her dad did have a surprise for her that night, but it wasn't the kind of birthday surprise she was hoping for. Abby had been recruited to help Zach spy on her mother. When the defendant came in back to the car, what happened next? I went up with him and we went to the window. We walked around the balcony this time and we went up the stairs and we went to the window. And he looks at me and he says, before you do anything, go like this with your shirt to make sure that you don't get the breath marks on the window. So I'd just like to have the record reflect that uh, the witness, Your Honor, pulled their shirt up, blocking their uh, ability to sort of breathe on objects, covering their nose and mouth. So after you were advised of that by the defendant, what's the next thing that happened? I don't know how to refer to him. Mr. Gutierrez, I guess. Okay. Um, and I saw him sitting on the couch with my mother coming out of the bathroom. And I didn't think that it was going to be this hard. Um, they were listening to music and uh, laying there together. 
And where is the defendant during that period of time? Standing next to me. After you look in and see that, what is the next thing that uh, happens? We leave. You leave? We got back in the car and we were on our way out. And he didn't grab the voice recorder at first until he pulled out and pulled onto the road. The voice recorder Abby is referring to is actually a phone she witnessed her dad place inside a crevice beside an air conditioner outside her mother's home. He stopped. He stopped right at the second entryway to our driveway and got out, took his, took his sandals off, and went to the house. So let me stop you. What footwear then was your... He didn't have his, shoes on. Okay, cool. keep going. He went into Mr. Gutierrez's car and took his registration and took a picture of his license plate. Okay. And, and I'm sorry, you saw that from your from where you were in the car? Yes, I personally saw that. Then what happened? And I saw him run, ring the doorbell. Somewhere in the time period from when he rang the doorbell, the phone was grabbed. And which phone are you referring to now? I'm the one that was put placed in the air conditioner. Okay. So after the defendant goes to Mr. Gutierrez's truck, takes a picture and takes an item out of the vehicle or, or takes registration, grabs back the phone, and he rings the doorbell, what does the defendant do next after he does those three things? Comes back to the car with the phone. All right. And then what happens? Plays the phone. Okay. Of course, the plays a recording on our way home. Okay. And what, if anything, can you say about what you could hear on that phone recording? Nothing. Okay. So where do you guys uh, go next? Back to my dad's house. Okay. When you get back, what happens next? I walk in. He tells me to get some sleep. I then was sitting downstairs and thinking about what just happened because I was a little like, did I really just see what I saw, what I just witnessed? And So after you guys got home, what happened next, if anything? He dropped me off and then he left again. Okay. And you were not with him any at that time? No, I don't remember what time that was. We got back around three, though. Did he tell you what he was going to do next before he left? No. Okay. So now, if I understand you, by now it's 3 a.m. on your actual 12th birthday. Yes. Okay. The woman Zach had been spying on, mother of three, Sadie Beecham, was intelligent and compassionate, a characteristic that was evident by her choice of career path. After getting her bachelor degree in special education with a minor in death studies at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, Sadie started her career as a mental health employment specialist for the deaf before moving on to social work and finally becoming a care manager at a nonprofit for adults with long-term care needs in 2017. During Zach's trial, Sadie was asked to recount her relationship with him from the beginning to the bitter end. How do you know Mr. Anderson? We had a relationship and we have children together. When did you first meet the defendant? I first met him in about 2007. You indicated you have children together. How many? We have three. And what year was your daughter born? Her daughter was born in 2008. And back in 2008, were you residing with the defendant? Yes. And at some point, uh, did you uh, stop residing with the defendant during your relationship? Yes. 
When is the last time by year that you actually lived with the defendant? 2012 is when he moved out. So since 2012, you've maintained separate residences? Yes. Did you continue to be in a uh, romantic relationship, though? Yes, it was on and off for the next few years. And ultimately, what year were your uh, twin boys born? 2015. And who did the children live with primarily throughout the years from 2012 until 2020? With me. And where was the defendant living during those years, the best you can recall? Um, all over the place. What do you mean by all over the place? Well, he had a home that was in Mequon, but his job took him all over the all over, so he was sometimes in different areas or different states. How would he see you and the kids when he was back in this area? Um, he would like come in town for the weekends or he'd come over on the weekend when he wasn't working. And fast forwarding to 2019, what was the status of your relationship with the defendant romantically during 2019? It was very tumultuous. We weren't doing well. It was, um, it was a relationship on its way out. And ultimately, did that relationship end for good at some point in 2019? Yes, uh, December of 2019. After 12 long years together, Sadie was ready to call it quits once and for all. The relationship had been on and off, and although she hadn't been looking for another romantic partner while she was with Zach, she was aware he'd been exploring his options. For Sadie, it felt time to move on. Did you take any affirmative steps to move on or potentially look for a new relationship moving forward? I did. Kind of just dabbled on Facebook dating. And did you meet someone named Rosalio Gutierrez Jr. on Facebook dating? I did. And approximately when in February of 2020 do you recall uh, connecting with him over that app? February 13th. And did you then start exchanging messages with Mr. Gutierrez? Yes, we started chatting on Facebook, dating app for a little bit, and then, then we exchanged messengers and started to chat that way. Since your relationship with the defendant since I think you said 2007, was this the first new relationship you had ever really attempted? Yes. Rosalia Gutierrez Jr. was a devoted single father in his 40s who centered his entire world around his two children. Their photos dominated his Facebook profile, and Rosalia was actively involved in his kids' lives, attending gymnastics events and coaching his son's baseball team. Occasional snapshots captured without his kids portray moments of Rosalia beaming with joy, sharing laughter and smiles with various friends. He was the kind of man who took the important relationships in his life seriously and was especially close to his mother, who'd raised Rosalio by herself for most of his childhood. Sporting sunglasses and a bit of a five o'clock shadow, Rosalio was always well-dressed. He was also well-educated, obtaining degrees in sociology and criminology at the University of Wisconsin. After becoming a public defender, Rosalio eventually gave up law to pursue a career as a contractor, flipping houses. It seemed like Sadie had finally found someone truly on her wavelength who mirrored her values, someone more grounded than her previous relationship with Zach. And it was looking like 
she was being given another chance at finding love. On March 5th, 2020, just a few short weeks after meeting Rosalio, Sadie was in Mexico, taking a well-deserved break with some friends without her kids. The children were back at Sadie's home, being watched by another friend, Rebecca, and all seemed to be going fine until Zach showed up in the middle of the night, unannounced, startling Rebecca out of her sleep. I had fallen asleep in the living room on the couch, and when I had woke up, there was the lights were off. I think the TV was in sleep mode, and um, I saw a dark figure at the end of the couch. So what happened when you saw the figure at the end of the couch? I don't know if I moved or made a sound, but the lights went on, and um, the defendant was standing at the end of the couch, just smiling at me and said, hey there. And I didn't really even know what to say. And so then he said, where the f are my kids and their whore mother? And he went upstairs and woke up the kids. And do you recall roughly what time of morning this was? Um, it was about quarter to four in the morning. And where were you staying that night that the defendant was in the living room? In Sadie's home. And to your knowledge, did the defendant live there? No, he did not. To your knowledge, was he supposed to be there? No. After the defendant went upstairs to wake up the children, what do you recall happening next? Um, he came back down with the kids um, and stood there and started asking me. He actually had told me that he was surprised I was there because he thought I was be down in Mexico whoring with her when he saw my Jeep in the driveway. And then he asked me again who she was with, and I told him the people who he also knows. Um, and he told me not to lie and that he knows she's f***ing somebody whose name starts with an L. Now, at this point, given your friendship with Miss Beecham, are you aware of anyone in her life at that point whose name or nickname started with an L? Yeah. And who is that? Rosalio. Um, we actually called him Leo because when she first told me his name, I'm kind of hard of hearing, and so I was like, I didn't understand what she said, so we started, like, made a joke that we would call him Leo, and that's, for a while, that's how she referred to him whenever she would speak to me about him. Prior to this March 5th incident you're talking about, approximately how long before that did you first hear about this Leo? I want to say maybe late January, early February, she kind of started talking about this guy that she was kind of chatting with, um, and I don't know for sure if that was when, but I remember like closer to Valentine's Day, um, she really started to talk more about him than, you know, she had in the weeks prior. Unsure about what to do, Rebecca contacted Sadie in Mexico. Back to March 5th of 2020, after the defendant said the thing about thinking that you'd be in Mexico, what happened next? I remember I had contacted Sadie and 911 was called um, and he was in the kitchen making breakfast and telling them to hurry up and eat because um, Auntie Becky says I'm a bad man and the cops are coming. And was this still roughly around 4 a.m.? It was around, yeah. I mean, the, when I looked at the clock, it was about, for the first time that I remember looking, it was about 3.45 in the morning, according to the clock in the living room. At trial, Abby explained the harrowing ordeal in her own words. I remember kind of waking up to footsteps up the stairs. 
and then I kind of drifted back off into a sleep and then dad was standing at the side of my bed and he was like get up for school let's go and I was like what and I was really confused and then I was like okay because at that time what am I going to do I mean my parents telling me to get ready at four o'clock in the morning so I don't really know what the point of it was but he had made breakfast um so what what time did you eat breakfast on this particular day in March of 2020? I don't know. We had French toast and eggs, and the time wasn't very clear. Was it before 4.30 in the morning? Most definitely. Okay, and you ate? Who else ate? My two little brothers. And how did, how did they happen to get up and have breakfast at that time on a school day? Um, my dad came into our rooms and woke us all up. Later in March, when Sadie returned home from her trip, she met up with Zach at a sandwich shop to lay out exactly where they stood in hopes that his strange behavior would level off. Unfortunately, things didn't go as planned. What did the defendant say during this meeting that was perhaps different than your, what your intention was in having the meeting? He wanted to talk about how he wanted to get back together. And what was your answer to him about wanting to get back together? Uh, I again just kind of iterated that the relationship was over and that it just was past its point. Did you believe you owed him any explanations about your personal life? No. And why did you believe that? Because we were not together. We were not in a relationship. He was not allowed in my house. I was afraid of him and we were not together. Sadie couldn't have been more clear. But it appeared Zach had no interest in parting ways and still wanted her back. What, if anything, did the defendant do after this meeting towards you that made you believe potentially he wasn't ready to give up on the relationship yet? He would constantly text me, call me, send me emails, these kind of woe is me emails and just find every direction to try to get back with me or just try to like almost in a harassing way, like just constantly emailing me all hours of the night, texting all hours. Not only was Zach interested in getting Sadie back, it would appear he also wanted to know what she was up to when he wasn't around. And when he couldn't keep an eye on her, he found other creative ways to be kept in the loop, including getting his 11-year-old daughter to take part in his reconnaissance missions. During this time frame, roughly March 16th of 2020, do you recall finding out that your daughter had gone through your phone? Yes. Zach had enlisted Abby to be his eyes and ears, spying on her mother, reading through her messages, and reporting back to him. As March wore on, Sadie explained how Zach's text messages became increasingly aggressive and vacillated between loving and accusatory. Text messages from March 19th at roughly 11.32 in the morning from the defendant to you. Uh, well, you getting your hair pulled by your new boo tonight or again tomorrow? I am not sure what time I will be home later and if I have the kids tomorrow. And you respond with WTF, either help or don't. Is that accurate? Yes. What was this conversation about? I'm not sure. Maybe I asked him to help with the kids or something. And then later on, 11.41 that day, he says, damn, put the gun down, I got the kids tomorrow and next week. And then he says, I'm saying maybe I get them in the mornings, you got to someone, 
We can be pals all you want, but I'm dying inside and don't want to be left out in the cold. Is that accurate? Yes. And then further down a little bit further down that day, he indicates to you that he loves you. Is that accurate? Yes. And then there's a text at 7.45 the next day. Since you are going to be checking your messages later, and I don't want you to have messages from all your new dudes and not me, he sent you that message. Is that accurate? Yes. March 21st of 2020, message came at 5.20 p.m. You and Leo got date night tonight. What's the plan? Is that a message that you received from him? Yes. Had you ever at that point personally told the defendant who Rosalio Gutierrez Jr. was? No. So when he knows the name Leo, that's not something you ever shared with him? No. The prosecution went on to give several examples between March 29th and the 31st, when Zach sent several messages and made several calls a day to Sadie, which she never responded to. During April of 2020, would the defendant make comments to you about you not being home at night? So there were a few times where I would stay over at Rosalia's and then I would get like text messages from Zach saying, oh, I see your cars in the driveway, or you didn't come home last night, or, um, yeah, things like that. The information being passed on to Zach by his daughter would eventually make its way back to Sadie through texts, with Zach making her aware he knew details he shouldn't know. Is this text read from, he's now on your phone as Junior, is that accurate? Yes. And why is he now on your phone as Junior when before it was Leo? Because uh, he started harassing me about Leo, and my daughter knew that. Sorry, when you say he started harassing me, who do you mean? Zach started harassing me using Leo, and so, and I kind of started having a feeling that my daughter was giving him information from my phone, um, and she knew that his name was in my phone as Leo, so I changed it so that she wouldn't be able to find it as easy and report back. It was on April 24th, the night Abby turned 12, that Zach took her on the late night drive to spy on her mom. Sadie assumed she and Rosalio had the house to themselves, but she'd soon discover they weren't as alone as she thought. On the night of the 24th, did the defendant take the kids to his house as planned? Yes, he did. And did you then have a company come to your house that night? Yes, I invited Rosalio to come over. And was he going to help you decorate for the birthday party? Yes. Did Mr. Gutierrez spend the night that night? Yes. And did something happen in the early morning hours that caused you concern in terms of hearing something? Uh, yes, so we were getting ready to retire from the bed. Um, it was like 2, 2.30 in the morning. We just laid down, and then I heard the doorbell ring. And I was kind of like, what's that? And, and we both got up and went to the door and didn't see, I didn't see anything or anybody. So then I went to the window. I have like a bay window that was outside of my bedroom and I kind of opened up the blinds and peeked out and as I peeked out I saw a black car going past the road right in front of the house and I 
just assumed, knowing that Zach had a black car, that that could have possibly been him. I kind of briefly told him I thought that my ex had been at the house, and so then that morning um, he went out to his truck and he came back in and he was like, hey, did I, did I go in my truck last night? It's like, no, and he's like, well, everything's all messed up in my car and, I, and things are like outside of my glove box and they're laying on my, my console. And he's like, I think he may have gotten in my car last night. I'm like, oh boy. So we just kind of parted our ways. I said, you know, I have to go to this birthday party and, you know, we agreed to talk later. When Sadie went back to pick up the kids from Zach's the next day, Abby seemed oddly cross with her, asking if they could head over to her place. Sadie agreed on the condition they all stayed outside because Zach wasn't allowed inside her home anymore. She'd become afraid of him. Inevitably, after arriving, Zach and Sadie began arguing, and Zach blurted out Rosalio's full name. Sadie had never told them his full name. From there, things continued to deteriorate, with Sadie now having to worry not just about Zach spying on her, but her daughter as well. On May 7th, do you recall having a concern that potentially your daughter was recording you with a phone? Uh, yes, so um, we had previously been handling a situation with our daughter and we had an agreement, Zach and I made an agreement that she was not to have any electronics, any phones or electronics on her. And so later that night, I, myself and the kids were at my friend Becky's house, Rebecca, and a phone had dropped out of lamp. And I noticed it, and I noticed that it was with a smartphone that I she was not supposed to have. And did you find something on that phone that you found concerning? Yes, when I took the phone, I recognized that it was one of her dad's phones. Not only was it one of Zach's phones, but his purchasing history showed he'd gotten a GPS tracker from Amazon mailed to his house. When Abby was asked how often Zach would talk about Rosalio, Abby responded by saying, pretty frequently. My dad said to me, he said, I may just watch him or follow him to his house one time just for the fun of it. His, those were his exact words to me. On May 8th, Sadie was on her way to Rosalia's home when something compelled her to search her vehicle. Sure enough, under her seat, there was a planted phone belonging to Zach. The phone was on and tracking its own location. When Sadie confronted Zach about it, he said it must have fallen out of his pocket by accident. Another way Zach was monitoring Sadie's movements was by recruiting a neighbor of hers to report back to Zach about which cars were in her driveway. Everything Zach had done to Sadie didn't point to a series of coincidences. Instead, it appeared intentional and planned out. Through it all, Sadie continued seeing Rosalio, and on March 13th, something happened that would send chills down her spine. A day she finally realized that no matter where she went, Zach would find a way to get to her. At Rosalio's home, 
Sadie was just about to sit down for dinner when he asked her what she wanted to watch on TV. Just then, Sadie received a text from Zach. It was this text the prosecution used to try to demonstrate how obsessed Zach was with Sadie and just how far he was willing to go to keep tabs on her. Suddenly, right after it comes from the lips of Rosalio Gutierrez, she receives a text on her phone. The text is from the defendant. And the text is an exact quote of what Rosalio just said to her. It's an exact quote that he's just texted her. Zach then sent a message saying the text had been an accident and he didn't mean to send it. It appeared that somehow Zach had been listening to Sadie inside Rosalio's house. Another notable moment that was brought up at trial was a plan Zach had suggested to his daughter to get her mom in trouble. The plan was to drive the kids over to Sadie's house when she wasn't there, drop them off, and then get Abby to call her dad, who was to be back at home by that time, and then tell him that their mother had abandoned them. Zach would then place a call to police. On May 16th, Sadie was invited to meet Rosalio's children for the first time, and it was a big moment. Demonstrating the relationship was getting serious. That night, she received a text message from Zach. On May 16th at roughly 11.23 p.m., did you receive a text from the defendant that is as follows? You race down to Kenosha every chance you get to lay with some Down syndrome Mexican version of your father just to pull a nose full and laugh at anything he says as you desperately throw yourself at him and in that you have your happiness. Yes. And did you respond to that message in any way? No. And you told him you were headed down to Kenosha? No. On May 17th, Sadie texted Rosalio, thinking that I want you to be my person for a while, like hopefully a long while. They texted back and forth, and at 8.36 p.m., he sent her one final message. It was the last message she'd get from him. What Sadie hadn't known was that Rosalio had actually made plans with another woman that night and had texted her an hour later at 9.27 p.m. It was the last time anyone would hear from him. The following morning on the 18th, Sadie's text to Rosalio again went unanswered. But while Sadie waited to hear from Rosalio, the prosecution laid out Zach's movements. You'll hear that in the early morning hours on the 18th, by 4.18 a.m., he's searching for area stores by him and when they first open. So he puts in Menards, he puts in Walmart, he's going through all the basic stores. Which of them opens first is essentially his line of inquiry. And he ends up getting a Walmart, opens at 8. Okay, This is now about six hours after Rosalio Gutierrez is last uh, known alive. The defendant arrives there just after 8, like 8.15, 8.18. It's pouring rain, still pouring rain, just as it was the day before. Pouring rain parking lot, not many cars. He parks as far as you can humanly park that minivan from the entrance. 
And he walks that whole distance, as opposed to parking in any of the probably hundreds of spots that are closer. He parks as far away as possible. He buys, with cash, bleach, rubber gloves, garbage bags, shampoo, Q-tips, pays cash, leaves, and heads over to an area where he is doing home demo at a lake house in the Belgium, Wisconsin area. A little more isolated locations, not his house. This is on the 18th in the morning, okay? Just hours after Rosalio Gutierrez has never been seen. He's at that location, according to his phone, for three hours. Then leaves, goes to many other locations, but near that location, so with, within that immediate area, is a state park, is Lake Michigan, uh, is a number of other remote locations and hundreds of dumpsters. The next day, on May 19th, with still no word from Rosalio, Sadie couldn't take it anymore. Up until then, they'd been texting each other every morning and night, and now there was nothing but silence. So just before 10.30 a.m., Sadie got into her car and drove over to his apartment to check in on him. When you arrived, what, if anything, did you notice first? I noticed that both of his vehicles were there. His screen was closed, door was open. And I could tell from, from the parking lot. So I pulled up. And where did you proceed to? I walked up to the screen door and noticed that, like I said, the glass door wasn't all the way closed. So I believe I was on the phone with my friend at the time and I called for him through the screen a few times and he didn't answer. So then I decided to go around into the, the main door to go to, to go to that door. When you went into the main door, uh, was, is there a locked door to get there, or is that an unlocked door? No, it's it's unlocked. So I um, proceeded to walk up to the door, and then as I walked up to the door, I noticed something on the wall by the door frame and the door where it connected. I noticed like something brownish. My first thought was it looks like soy sauce, and I'm like, what? It looked like something was thrown on the wall there, and it wasn't there before. So I was kind of like, what is that? And then, like I said, I knocked on the door, I didn't get any answer. And then I tried to open the door and it was locked. Um, and then I went to go knock again. And when I went to go knock on the door, I saw brown dots. He has a red door, a dark red door. And I could see like brown dots all over the door. I got a very sick feeling. Um, I then decided to walk back outside and go to the, the main door again. And um, I remember being very afraid. I remember I, I being on the phone with my friend and her saying, you know, just open the door, just go, just open the door and go in and see if he's there. And I, you know, I said, okay. And I opened the screen and I pushed the blinds aside and I just, I immediately saw red blood, just a lot of um, brownish, reddish blood on the floor and the, the apartment looked different. It was, um, 
it, it looked different. It looked like furniture had been moved and strategically placed somewhere else. It did not look the way that it looked the night before. And I, I something was, I could tell something was missing and I couldn't figure, I couldn't put my finger on it immediately. I then realized that it was the rug that was missing and I, I freaked. I, I, I called his name and then I, I remember my friend saying, you have to call 911 and I called 911 and they came and then I, I never went in into the apartment and then they came and they did their sweep and you know I just told them what I what I knew. Although there was no sign of Rosalio himself, there was enough blood in the apartment to know something terrible must have happened. When the blood was later analyzed, DNA testing confirmed it was Rosalio's. Later another piece of evidence was discovered that spelled out what might have happened. Throughout that area where you are first in the entrance, there is a small stick of processed wood, like a baseball bat or some other hard object. It's not a log, it's not a you know piece of cut timber. That piece of wood ends up having blood on it, which is found to be the blood of Rosalio Gutierrez and hair on it as well which is also found to be Rosalio Gutierrez. When police questioned Sadie, there was only one person that came to mind that might have had ill intent towards Rosalio. I remember an officer coming up to the window and saying, do you know of anybody or any, you know, do you know of anyone who would want to hurt him? You know, I said, no, I don't know. I said, but I did say that my daughter had been telling me about some pretty disturbing things that my ex was doing and I had concerns that he was tracking me and that I had reached out to law enforcement to express my concerns and nothing had happened and that maybe there was something there and the officers asked if my daughter would be willing to come down and talk about what she knew. As it turned out, Sadie wasn't the only person thinking about Zach. Two friends of Rosalio's who were aware of Sadie's ex decided to go over to Zach's house and confront him before police showed up to question him. When they asked him about Rosalio's disappearance, Zach told them he wasn't Zach, but his brother, and the two men calmly left. But Zach wouldn't be so lucky with police. Two days later, on May 21st, Zachariah Anderson was arrested for two counts of felony stalking. The authorities and Rosalio's loved ones had no idea where Rosalio could possibly be. His whereabouts were a complete mystery. He was missing, but not without a trace. The blood inside his home looked like evidence of foul play, and everyone feared the worst. On May 19th, the day Rosalio's disappearance was discovered, a search warrant for Zach's van was executed. So the initial search warrant that we conducted was for evidence related to uh, possible stalking. So we were looking a lot for um, GPS trackers, uh, electronic device, things that would be kind of related to the information that uh, Ms. Beecham had, had provided to us. Once the officers executed that search warrant, they had determined that there was a, a van that was found at, at the residence and then within that van 
They discovered that there were apparent bleach spots, that the vehicle had smelled like bleach, there was carpet ripped out, and from what they observed, possible apparent blood droplets. A state crime lab forensic scientist testified that DNA found in Zach's van matched Rosalio's, but that wasn't all. The defendant's laptop. When they get into it, they find a file that's labeled Rosalio Gutierrez Jr. So it's got his name. Picture after picture screenshots of Facebook photos of Rosalio Gutierrez out socializing, but also a number of pictures of him with his kids. Rosalio's work information and maps to his home were also found. It appeared to detectives Zach had been creating a comprehensive dossier on Rosalio. Another notable discovery was what detectives found at Zach's home. He's got a burn pit at his house that he has smoldering when the cops get there two days later. He's been operating the burn pit in the pouring rain. In it are an underwear band from Fruit of the Loom underwear, jean buttons, steel-toed boot components. Did he burn some clothes that he might have been wearing on that day? In the burn pit, they also found a bottle of bleach. At Zach's home, investigators further discovered $50,000 in cash Zach had withdrawn just two days before Rosalio's disappearance. Exactly what Zach intended on doing with such a large amount of cash remains unknown. But that kind of untraceable money could certainly go a long way in helping someone flee the area without leaving a digital footprint behind. Detectives would later find a second burn pit at Zach's Christmas tree farm, one that contained even more recently burned clothing. While investigators collected evidence, Rosalia's mother Celia had a terrible responsibility of her own to deal with. Many days went by when I received a call from Detective Correa that my son's apartment was released. I dreaded it, but I am his mother and it was my task and responsibility to clean his apartment and pack his belongings. I prayed and found the courage the next day to go to his apartment and begin that heart-wrenching task. I unlocked his front door, blood-stained door, and entered into my hell. I sat on his couch, taking it in, crying uncontrollable and alone. Alone with my thoughts of despair, imagining the pain my son endured as I witnessed the aftermath of his brutal attack. I gathered myself and started a walkthrough, videotaping and photographing my son's apartment. It would take me days to complete the task of cleaning and packing his personal belongings and his children's too, his furniture. I have it all still, unable to throw away any piece of clothing he wore or item he owned. I will never forget having to scrub off and wipe clean the blood off the entry door, the walls, the ceilings, the blinds, the furniture. My son's blood was all over the front living space, with his blood spatter on his children's drawings and family photographs. While she was cleaning, Rosalio's mom found evidence investigators had missed. 
while cleaning the kitchen refrigerator, I discovered my son's cell phone, driver's license, and credit cards in the refrigerator freezer. Rosalio hadn't been heard from since the 17th of May, and his mother, who had a master's degree in criminology and worked at the district attorney's office, could read the writing on the wall. No contact with family, no credit card activity, and all that blood in the apartment. She knew her son was gone. I knew then, right then, that my son was gone, dead. I can't explain it, I just knew. All these thoughts started raising through my head. Oh my God, why, why? My son is dead. I just started to cry and I was overwhelmed with guilt. I thought of our last text exchange on Saturday when he texted me a photo of him and the children at the park. I responded with another text, not knowing that it would be my last. To this day, I regret not calling him back and speaking with him and visiting with him on FaceTime. I live with these regrets and so many more. It was determined through forensics and by the amount of blood present in Rosalio's apartment that he'd been murdered between 9.06 p.m. and 9.37 p.m. on May 17th. With all the evidence piling up against Zach, police made the decision to arrest him on May 21st. But his initial arrest technically had nothing to do with Rosalio's disappearance and suspected homicide. Instead, they arrested and charged him with two counts of felony stalking. In December of 2020, in addition to his stalking charges, Zach was formally charged with homicide and hiding a corpse. He pleaded not guilty to everything. Zach's trial began February 28, 2023, and because Rosalio's body had never been found, prosecutors were faced with the task of not only proving Zach had committed murder, but that a murder had even happened in the first place. But they believed they had enough circumstantial evidence, forensic evidence, and even evidence of Zach's own behavior leading up to the disappearance. To paint a vivid picture of what he'd done to Rosalio, Zach's daughter Abby testified to the strange discovery she'd made in her father's home while she was playing with her brothers, a discovery that pointed to a deadly encounter. A Lego had dropped through the floorboards, and so we had asked if he could go down there and look for it, and I said, yeah, that should be okay. And then I went down and with him, obviously, because it was, I'm not gonna lie, the basement was kind of creepy. So he asked me if I could go with him. I said, yeah, so I went down there. There was a roller chair and it had tape and rope on it. And my brother had a flashlight. We went down there, whatever, got his Lego and went back upstairs. Didn't think anything of it. When Abby testified, Zach could be seen indicating to the now 15 year old what appeared to be a signal using his fingers to clamp his lips shut. Another witness for the prosecution turned out to be a former cellmate of Zach's, who testified what he claimed Zach told him he'd done to Rosalio. He said he stabbed him and he blacked out. He said he stabbed him, he stabbed him, and I just blacked out. And he said he eventually wrapped the body up in garbage bags 
and got rid of the trash. He threw the trash out. I asked him, what did he mean by that? And he said, I said, what, like dumpster or trash? And he said, once it's gone, it's gone. Yes, he said they called him Houdini because of his case, basically because he made a body disappear, they say. And everybody called him Houdini because of it. Zach's defense touched on several points in closing arguments, attempting to frame a stalking as normal behavior for a man who was sad over his relationship ending and concerned about the character of the man his children might meet. They further claimed that Abby's testimony was inconsistent, that Zach's DNA was never found at the crime scene, and most importantly, that there was no body to prove a crime had even been committed. This entire case is built on possibilities and a series of what-if questions. It's an assembly of guesswork. The tragedy is that the real killer has not been caught, if in fact Rosalio is dead. Now, again, the way that this works is that if after hearing everything and after you go through your deliberations and you have discussed your view of the facts and what the state has or has not proven, if you come to the internal conclusion that it's possible that Zachariah Anderson may have committed these crimes, that means not guilty. Possible means not guilty. The prosecution summed up their argument with this to say, you have 1,039 days of proof that Rosalio Gutierrez is murdered. His blood in that van is proof who murdered him. The electronics of the defendant himself demonstrate his obsession and his more and more concerning pattern and that he knows no limits. And they tell you that he has a gap off the grid, which is exactly the amount of time that is necessary. And the defendant's lies to law enforcement confirm, because they are on such major matters, they confirm for you that this is not an innocent man falsely accused. And when you put all this evidence together, you will say to yourself, it was quite a plan, but it is not a plan that in the end can succeed because it is betrayed by that speck of blood of Rosalio Gutierrez it's betrayed by the electronics, and it's betrayed by the defendant's own lies. And you will find this defendant responsible, and you will hold him responsible despite this plan that he tried everything he could to avoid responsibility. Seven inches of rain fall over a three-day period. And in this fire pit that's still smoldering to the point that the fire chief has to come and help put it out, or the deputy chief talked about the remedial measures they had to take, was everything that you would need to get rid of to try to cover up a crime in, the, in these circumstances. Bleach, well we know bleach was used in the car, you saw the stains. You have clothing, specifically jeans, at least one pair, potentially more than one pair, which as Mr. Gravely indicated, makes sense here because you both murdered someone, but then also had to clean up that scene. Socks, underwear that match yours, uh, steel-toed boots, which that's not something that I've ever heard of being burned before, but apparently it can be done given what's in the fire pit. And that's why it's suspicious. Having a fire pit's not suspicious. What you're burning in the middle of a rainstorm is. You're getting rid of evidence, evidence you never expect to be found. So in totality, what we have here is a defendant with the means, the motive, and the opportunity to commit this murder. He's the only person that was even talked about in this case that had any sort of motive against Mr. Gutierrez. Sadie Beecham was happy. Mr. Anderson was pissed because Sadie Beecham was happy. And that's what the defendant couldn't stand. 
What I'm asking you to do is consider all of the evidence here, focus in on both the physical evidence, the DNA specifically, because there is no explanation for that that should uh, have any doubt in your mind that this defendant murdered Rosalio Gutierrez, and he needs to be held accountable for that. I ask that you return guilty on all verdicts. Thank you. On March 22nd, Zachariah Anderson was found guilty of homicide in the first degree, hiding a corpse and two counts of stalking. Zach had this to say. Without going into the case, I don't think we really got to the heart of the matter. What I can tell you is, I didn't kill anybody. What I can tell you is, I didn't stalk anybody. What I can tell you is, I didn't dispose of any corpse. It's really weird to be sentenced for or convicted for it and soon to be sentenced for it, but I didn't judge. It kind of feels like there's no turning around on that now. I don't really know how to make a better statement of my opposition. But I disagree. I'm innocent. I don't know what you're going to decide. I don't know what you're all going to weigh. I don't even know how to represent my own character without having my family be able to testify on my behalf. Many people gave victim impact statements, but Zach's daughter was the only one that seemed to bring a flicker of emotion to his face. This is meant for dad. Um, 13 letters was the beginning not realizing that the next three years of my life would be taken from me and consumed with learning how to be my own person. Watching myself go into a really dark place was hard. Getting out and regaining my confidence was a whole new level of difficult. I never thought seven years ago this was the way me, my mom, and my dad's story ended. <laughs> it breaks my heart to this day knowing things will never be the same. <laughs> The joy, the sadness, and the anger were all things I once had. And then the numbing happened. And that scared me because it gave me the loss of respect, even for myself. I started thinking and waking up to the fact that now I need to make a change in my life and not let the same abusive patterns continue. Little did I know, I was already trapped. Trapped in a mindset I couldn't free myself from. To this day, I wonder, did he ever love me? Or was I just a pawn, a toy, or his little golden retriever? You took me for granted and you will never get the same respect back. If you don't believe me, ask mom. She doesn't have that respect either anymore. After this whole situation, I had to relearn how to not let what other people said get to me so much and retrain my mind to not have a mindset like my parents. I think you'd like to know it's beautiful outside. It's for sure frisbee weather and a bit windy. <laughs> so turbulence would catch it, but we'd have fun. <laughs> Forever and always I miss you and I love you, but a quote from the 13 letters. Do not come back and expect me to welcome you back in with open arms. You need to work on yourself first. I've worked on myself for the past three years. It's your turn now if you want your baby girl back. On May 16th, Zach was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole for 40 years, plus six years, plus two years. Rosalio's body has never been found. His mother gave this impact statement. 
Mr. Anderson made a conscious, calculated, and planned decisions, which led to the evening hours of Sunday, May 17, 2020. He chose to cowardly stalk my son, consumed with jealousy and hatred towards a man he did not even know, waiting for the right time, and savagely attacked and murdered him, then hid his heinous actions by removing and disposing my son's corpse. I no longer have the hugs and kisses of my son, his smile, our conversations and visits, watching him grow old and care for his aging parents. His children no longer have the support of their father. Their father's presence for their educational needs, life events, birthdays, graduations, weddings, and for their guidance and encouragement in their lives as they grow older. Extended family, friends, and countless others no longer have my son to call on or to share memories with. Mr. Anderson deprived my son of his life. What did he do with my son's body? Will Mr. Anderson ever tell me or tell this court? Since Zach's conviction, his brother Solomon Anderson has done several interviews and believes his brother was wrongfully convicted on several charges and is serving a life sentence as an innocent man. On a website called freezachariahanderson.org, the site states that Zach's guilty verdict was a miscarriage of justice created by a multi-layer system of failures, including false accusations, a poor police investigation, jailed by confirmation bias, a corrupt district attorney, a media campaign to taint the potential jury pool, a judge unfit to stand trial, and a truckload of witnesses willing to perjure themselves for their own gain. All systems designed to protect and serve gobbled him up, stripped him of all ability to defend himself or maintain his innocence, and spit him out into a prison cell to waste away forgotten. The website also states, that Zach's family refuses to stop fighting until he's once again a free man, and those responsible for his wrongful conviction are held accountable. What shouldn't be forgotten about this case are the other victims, the children, Rosalio's children, who will now journey through life without the presence, support, guidance, and love of their dad. Sadie and Zach's children will also live without the presence of their father and will no doubt have a long road to healing from everything they witnessed and experienced before this tragedy occurred, the trial and the aftermath. Follow The Minds of Madness on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To support the show and get access to ad-free episodes, extra content, and Patreon-exclusive episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. To find us on Instagram and Facebook, search The Minds of Madness, and on Twitter using the handle at madnesspod. And also... By checking out our sponsors and using our promo codes, you're also helping support the show. We've got all the links in our episode notes. So until next week, thanks for listening. <laughs>